The rest of you, please open your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to take a few weeks to do something. Um, this morning is the start of a, I don't know how many weeks, a couple weeks at least, of what it means to plant churches. And what, um, if you've heard that term and you're familiar with it, then some of this will be review. For some of you, this will be new stuff. It'll be a thought that maybe you've never had before. And so if you will find the book of Acts and find specifically the 11th chapter, the 11th chapter of Acts. We have a pretty good crowd here this morning. It's, it's always encouraging. I don't know if some of you sometimes come to the 11 o'clock service. It's not always this full. It's just this seems to be the most popular service, and it's a full house. And I want you to imagine, if you can for a moment, not only this service packed, but the 11 o'clock service packed, and every other church in town packed. Okay? Wouldn't that be great? Here's the problem. There's still not enough chairs for everybody that lives around us. Even if every church, including ours, were packed every Sunday, there's millions of lost people living around us. That's one of the motivating factors for planting new churches. An existing church like ours cannot reach everybody. All the existing churches can't. And I'm going to get into that over the next week or two. And what we're going to do, I don't, I'm not smart enough just to give you kind of a case for that. We're going to look at the book of Acts because if you think about it, the book of Acts is the gospel going to the world, and, it's, and it, they don't just share the gospel, churches form. They would elect elders or, or appoint elders at different places. And so all the churches we know, like Ephesus and Rome and Corinth, is the result of somebody sharing the gospel and those people gathering together and forming a church. And so um, that's what I hope we understand at the, at the end of this, just why we even want to be a part of something called church planting, what it is, how it works. We've talked about um, a work up in Trimble, and we're trying to work out details with reaching that community. We partner with churches in El Salvador. We, we financially partner in ways that maybe you're not aware of, but we have helped um, support churches in Washington, D.C. We've helped support churches in Kansas City to Hispanic populations. That's all because of your generosity and your gifts. We've done a lot of things financially behind that. We're involved in even the assessment process of um, finding new church planters and pastors to do all that kind of stuff. Um, we're on the ground floor of maybe actually doing it ourselves, and so we're kind of learning what that looks like. And I want me, I want to know, and I want you to know the, the biblical foundation for this, why it's important, why we should be involved in it. Some of you may ask the question that a lot of people ask is, why do we need to do that? We're busy enough around here. We got enough going on here. It's because there's still lost people out there. And so that's, that's my heart this morning. And Acts chapter 11 helps us do that. If you start in verse 19, we're going to look at the church of Antioch. And this is what Luke writes there in, in Acts 11, 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. 
Then Barnabas began, or went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called, were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Um, the example we have here of what it means to spread the gospel and what happens when that is done. Um, God, we want to join you in the work of reaching the lost. We thank you, God, for this church here. We thank you for Grace Community Church in Smithville and all that you've done here. God, I, I, it's my prayer that you help us get a, a grander vision of our community, of our neighboring communities, in fact, of the, of the world where people need to hear the good news of Jesus and that you would add to your number those who are being saved. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, following your outline there, the first point I have is the examples of church planting. This Antioch is one of those examples. But in the book of Acts, so point A is in Acts, way back at the beginning of this book, you might be familiar with these words. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That verse in Acts chapter 1 is telling the early disciples, the early followers of Jesus, is, is before he ascends to heaven, you're to go be my witnesses. You're to tell the world about me. And the way he spells it out is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's exactly the outline of the book of Acts. For the first few chapters, you get Jerusalem, and then you get Judea, and then you get Samaria, and then you get to the ends of the earth. We're reaching that point by the time we get to Acts chapter 11. And if you think about the early church, there's really no earthly reason that we should be here today because the early believers were uh, ridiculed, mocked, persecuted, had no money, had no buildings, had no outline, had no bylaws, had no nothing, Right? So the power of the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to reach the globe with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what the book of Acts does. You may know that sometimes this book is called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. It's because God is working through his church to plant churches and to reach people with the gospel. And if the book of Acts weren't in here, we would leave the gospels and we'd pick up Rome, the Roman letter, and then the Corinthian letters, and we'd say, well, where'd they come from? Well, they came from what happened in the book of Acts. As the gospel spread, that's exactly what the book of Acts shows us, is these new churches being formed. Well, let's get to our text. Point B is what happened in Antioch. It says there in verse 19, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, that's found earlier in the book. You're familiar with those stories, I think. It, it traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. If you look at verse 20, some of them, men from Cy Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks. So it began with the Jews only, and then it spread out to the Greeks, or the Gentiles is another way to say that. Well, what do we know about Antioch? Antioch was one of the three major cities of the Roman Empire. There was Rome, there was Alexandria, and there was Antioch. It's been called in history the Paris of the East, or the Paris of the Mediterranean. It was a very cosmopolitan center. It had about 500,000 people living there. It was, um, 
a gateway to the rest of the world. It was very commercial. It was very sophisticated. It had a lot of political corruption in it. I don't know if you can imagine anything like this, but that's what it was. Had a lot of immorality there, a lot of idolatry there. It it was on a river, and they said that that river was flooded with the wickedness that came out of Antioch. And so that's how the gospel took hold. People far from God, people worshiping and believing other things, and that's exactly kind of our culture too, if you think about it. That's where the gospel, that's why the gospel needs to go there. And so Antioch is not some place just ready for the gospel. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working through people, spreading the good news about Jesus, and it reached this faraway, sophisticated, corrupt, immoral place. That's what church planting is about, is trying to shed light into those dark places. Well, point C I have, what about in America? These are all ancient times, and we don't really know much. So it, this begs the question, why I say, what about here? Focus in, not just why America, why Smithville? Why Trimble? I've already alluded to some of the challenges that come with this. Don't we have enough churches already? And I think I've given you the answer. Even if they're all full, there's still lost people all around us. Let me give you a few statistics. And I know statistics can be kind of hard to say, let alone understand. But in 1820... Okay, 1820, nobody was alive back then, long time ago. There was one Christian for every 875 residents in the United States. Okay, just put that in your mind. One Christian for 875. From 1860 until 1906, Protestant churches planted one new church for every 350 growth in population. By the end of World War I, one church for every 430 people. So they basically have that. You follow me on this? Early on, 1 to 870, by the end of World War I, one church. Doesn't mean they're all saved, but one church to every 430 people. Well, because of a number of reasons, that stopped happening. That stopped happening, and it soon plummeted. And today, we're almost back, we're worse than where we started. There are fewer and fewer churches per population, let alone lost population. The only way it can be reversed as one church planner is that we plant churches at a rate of 1,000 population growth, okay? So every time, do you, do we or do we not live in an area that seems to be growing, right? You know the housing market, you know what's going on. I hope, I, I get excited when somebody hears about our church or visits our church or whatever. We can't fit them all. We can't. Every church can't fit them all. If people keep moving, Clay County and Platte County are some of the most unreached, lost counties in the Kansas City metro area. We live in a lost world. And I hope they come here, but I don't think they can. Now, you might say, well, that's just a matter of seats, right? No, I'm talking about salvations here. Here's Here's another statistic that might grab your attention. If a church is 50 years old, Okay, We're not there yet. We're almost halfway there. It will take basically 50 members in that church to reach one lost person. Okay, That's, how many, that's the, the ratio there. If you're 10 years old, so we're, kind, we're a little older than that, but it takes seven people to reach one lost person. A new church can reach with three people one lost person because they're all excited. They're do, God's doing something. They can tell their neighbors and get them there versus we just kind of settle down into our routine. New churches reach lost people quicker. A, a church 
will, an existing church of a hundred, I'm sorry, an existing church will baptize basically 3.4 people per 100 people. So if we're running 400, let's say, we will average about 12 or 13 baptisms a year statistically. Now we've been above that for the last few years, but that's a good marker. If you have a new church, they baptize 11.7 people per 100. See, if that were us, we'd be up in the 50s and the 60s. But a new church can do that ratio. There's just something different. Unchurched people are more likely to go to something around other new Christians or unlost people than they are an existing church. It's easier to get plugged in. It's easier to know people. I had a conversation this week to somebody about another church. This is a great church in the Kansas City metro area. They were trying to decide whether to visit us or visit them, and they're a great church too. They're a little bigger than us. We're a little too big for some people. New churches, as one church planner says, the single most effective evangelistic method under heaven is to plant new churches. Okay? So that's why we even consider this. This is why we even look at this. Well, Point two, what are the elements of church planting? Do we just throw up a sign someplace? Do we just, I mean, build it and they will come kind of mentality? Well, Acts 11, and we'll get into the text now, shows us what should happen. Or let me put it this way. Maybe I've just thought of this. So let me get my brain around this for a second. It's not just that you do something and automatically there's a church. I think God honors certain things. I think he honors the preaching of his word. I think he honors caring and loving people. I think he honors humility. And I think if you can find certain things with a group of people, God will bring people to that because it's a reflection of the gospel. And so in Acts 11, it's not so much a blueprint on how to start a church. It's if you do these things, people will be drawn to that by the Holy Spirit. And so um, I, I don't want you to think, oh, we often do is flip a switch and do A, B, C, D, and we're done. I just want, I think it's what God honors. So it's an example here in Antioch. The first thing he honors, I believe, is evangelism. Look at verse 19 again. Those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. If you go back to chapter 8, and you can probably fill in the blanks there, there was a guy named Stephen. He was the first Christian martyr. You know the name of the guy who stood by and persecuted him, right? His name was Paul. So a great persecution broke out, and it says there in chapter 8, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So Acts 11 is just the extension of that. People are being driven from Jerusalem. The church is being persecuted. And they go, and, and, and they, they, it says they're scattered by that persecution, and they traveled as far as these cities, Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word among the Jews only. At that time, Jesus was the, the promised Messiah of, the, of Israel. Um, it's, there are several verses where Paul would say it went, the gospel went first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles to show that God does not show favoritism. But at this point, those people that are scattered, they're largely Jewish. They're talking to their friends. They're talking to Jewish people. Jesus is the Messiah, they're telling them. Verse 20, though, some of them, however... Men from Cyprus and Cyrene, we don't know these people, and I want you to remember that. We don't know who they are yet. Went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. Okay? This is, if you're a Jew, if you're a traditional Jew, these are the unclean people. These are the unclean dogs. Some of the rabbis taught that the only reason God created the Gentiles was to kindle the fires of hell. Okay? 
That was his whole purpose in, in making. Now that goes so far against what the Old Testament says, which is to Abraham, you're to be a light to the Gentiles and to the nations. But anyway, they had taken it that far. And the fact that these people began to speak to the Gentiles also is a major shift in the book of Acts. And as I told a group of people on Thursday, just so you know, we're the unclean dogs, Gentiles. We are the ends of the earth. Does that make sense? This started in the Middle East, and, and we're the ones that shouldn't be in on this. But Paul told the Ephesians, the, the, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. There's no longer Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. We're all one in Christ. Don't forget that. We lose our racial identity. We lose our ethnic identity. And rather than being called a Jew or a Greek, we learn this in the text, we become Christians, a whole new race of people. And so the good news, it says, they, they, in verse 20, they were telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. I, I stopped at that passage and I thought, I, I forget, and I suppose you forget too, what good news it is about Jesus Christ. See, it becomes just part of who we are. It just becomes accepted that we've been accepted by God. It is good news that God accepts us. We are dead in our sins. We deserve wrath, and yet the good news is that Jesus died for us. Never lose sight of the goodness of the good news. We don't belong here. We weren't born into this club. We don't deserve to be into this club. And I'm using the word club lightly. You understand what I'm saying? We don't deserve to be a part of the family of God. It's good news that an invitation was extended through Jesus Christ. And so he's telling these Gentiles who've been told all their lives, you're too far from God. You're too unclean. No, God made a way through Jesus Christ that you can be right with him. And that's good news. Well, it says in verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them. I never want to lose sight of this. Anything we do in evangelism, church planning, or whatever, even our existing church, if God's not with us, then we're in trouble. Okay? Well, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Down in verse 23, it says, Barnabas arrived, and he saw that the gra- what the grace of God had done. A couple phrases there. They believed. They accepted, they trusted, they put their trust and their confidence in Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation. He is the only way to God. Their works can't do it. Their righteousness can't do it. Just the fact that they're better than somebody else can't do it. They trusted Jesus. They believed that he was the one who had paid their debt. And then it also says they turned to the Lord. We can't miss this either. This is the repentance side of things. When I get saved, when you got saved, we get a new heart, we get a new spirit, and God expects us to follow Him. He expects us to turn to Him. This re- repentance literally is a changing the way our hearts thinks and our mind thinks and we behave. We should change. As I was jotting notes this week, I, 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 I hesitate to call it journaling. That sounds like I'm more with it than I am, but I was jotting notes down. And I thought, you know, when we read the Word of God, Sometimes we'll be convicted of, oh, that my life doesn't line up with that. Either I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing or I'm not doing this. You know, it just, we, we sense that. And then if you're like me, then I just keep reading on. And I never, I, I never do anything about that. And so I made this little list that when I'm convicted either by the Spirit of God or by what somebody says or what the Bible says, then I need to confess that sin to God. You understand? It's one thing to just say, oh, that doesn't, that's not how I'm doing it. 
and then move on. I need to bear that to the Lord and, and God say, this is where I'm mess, missing it. I, I confess to you that I'm not living up to your standard right now. What does the Bible tell us? That when we do that, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then I just need to say, I need to trust that. That's much better than saying, oh, I messed up there. I guess I'll keep reading, right? Well, they didn't just believe in Jesus. They turned to the Lord. There was fruit from, yeah, there was fruit from what had happened in, in their life. Secondly, not only is there evangelism going on there, there's encouragement. If you look at verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So now we're introduced to this man named Barnabas. Many of you, if you grew up in church, kind of know Paul and Barnabas go together, right? Like peanut butter and jelly, there's something going on there. Well, well Barnabas, we know from other places, he's called the son of encouragement, okay? We know elsewhere that he's a companion of, of Paul's. I want you to at least listen if you don't want to turn there. Acts chapter 4 when it, when the Bible tells the early church sold all their possessions to give to those who were, they were all in Jerusalem and selling their possessions. It says in verse 36 of chapter 4, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That's Barnabas. Barnabas is known as the son of a, he had three names, Joseph and whatever, what else they call him, Barnabas and, no, just two, son of encouragement. He sold his field and he gave the money at the apostles' feet. He was a generous person, we know from that. He was a sacrificing person, we know from that. In chapter 9, we read that he joined, uh, when the disciples came and joined, um, people were afraid of Paul because he had persecuted the church. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Can you imagine the man that sat there and watched Stephen get killed is now able to move freely among the same people because of what Barnabas Encourage them to do. Barnabas was one of those people that could find somebody that had really messed up. Think of Paul was like a domestic terrorist among the Jews. And he vouched for him. And he encouraged him. And he partnered with him. And he, later on we, we find out that he let Paul do most of this, this preaching. That Barnabas was just there supporting him. People in the lost world need to know that, that no matter what they've done or what's been done to them, people in the church, like Barnabas, say, but God's at work in their life, and support them and encourage them. If you look down at verse 23, it says, when they arrived, they saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad. Barnabas was. He was happy when other people came to faith. And he encouraged them all. This is giving away my outline, but the word encouraged can also be extorted, not extorted, exhorted them. He basically was begging them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. I'm really liking Barnabas, by the way. Can these things be true of us, that we encourage others in their faith to remain true with all their hearts? Are you involved in helping somebody else grow as a Christian? When Paul gives the qualifications for church leaders and elders and pastors in Titus, he says, 
They must hold firmly to the trustworthy message that has been taught so they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. By the way, elders and pastors have these qualifications. Those are found almost everywhere else in the Bible for every believer. Every believer ought to be encouraging somebody. Ought to, every b- believer ought to be doing that in somebody's lives. In verse 24, I've, I've probably said this a number of times through the years, but you can put this on my tombstone too if you want someday. Only if it's true. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Man, what a standard. This is the guy we don't know that much about, right? We know the headliner, Paul. This is the man behind the scenes, full of the Holy Spirit, encouraging other people, going and finding people far from the Lord and bringing him. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of faith. And people are coming to the Lord because God is using him. By the way, you can put that on my tombstone. I also hope they could put it on your tombstone. What a great way to describe a person, right? Well, that's, that's Barnabas, and that's the encouragement part. I told you, this is my outline again, verse C, is the exhortation, another definition of that encouragement. So if you look at verse 25 now, then Paul went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So let's play this game. Where's Saul? Why is he in Tarsus? What's going on? To look for in the Greek has the idea of an intense look. It's The word is found elsewhere like searching intently or hunting for something. A lost treasure or something like that. What Barnabas, Barnabas steps away from what's going on in Antioch. And he goes to Tarsus to find this guy named Saul. Now we've, we've filled in enough blanks to know that Paul and Saul, same guy, was there persecuting Stephen. And he chased the believers around. God gets a hold of Paul's life and changes his heart. And Barnabas has already kind of let the apostles and the people in Jerusalem know he's a changed man and they accepted him. But as a Jewish person and a rabbi at that and well-trained, it's very likely that everything he had in this world was kind of gone now. That was his career path. That was his... That was his inheritance. That was his future. His, his retirement account it was all in the, the, the works religion of Judaism. And he gave it all up. He would tell the Philippians, I consider it all loss, you know, compared to gaining Christ. And so maybe Saul, we're just guessing here, went back to Tarsus, his hometown, and said, I'm just going to make tents for a living and see what God's going to do. Maybe he felt like he didn't have much to offer. You know, he, he could have gone into the book, you know, where are they now kind of deal. If, if Barnabas had not interceded and went and hunted him down, we might not never know about Paul. He would have just been there making tents. But he went and found him, it says. And in verse 9, I'm sorry, look back at verse 9. Don't forget this part. Those who had been scattered by the persecution, who was persecuting them? Connect verse 25 and and 19. They were scattered because Paul was persecuting them. They go and preach the good news. Saul goes to Tarsus after he gets saved, and now they're all back in the same place. Isn't that amazing how God can work stuff like that out? God is in control, folks. Even when somebody's persecuting and something's going bad and you're running for your life, God's in control. He's taking the gospel to Antioch. He's going to bring the guy who did it to Antioch once he gets him saved. And that just tells me God's in control. And by the way, no matter what you've done, you're not out of God's will. Maybe I'm the Barnabas in your life today saying, I don't care what you've done. 
I don't care how many times you rejected God, how many times you spit in his face. I don't care if you think you've blown it with sin. There's a place in God's kingdom for you. God wants to use you to reach lost people, in fact. Your story will relate to somebody's story. Your failure will be the door for somebody to come into the kingdom of God. And so don't just throw up your hands. Verse 26 now. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Again, to all those people he'd been persecuting, they're running from him. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught a great number of people. For a whole year, okay? Whatever we're doing in evangelism or church planning takes time, okay? It takes time. We're not even a full year into even our first conversation with Trimble, okay? It, stuff like this takes time. Sharing your faith takes time. It's not the first time usually when somebody responds after they've heard it and watched it modeled in somebody's life and felt the love of a believer that eventually God starts reaching in their heart. But it says they worked together for over a year. Um, Acts chapter 14 is interesting. When they go to a, a, another couple towns, um, the people there start saying to Paul and Barnabas, you guys are gods, small g gods. It says the gods have come down to us. Barnabas they called Zeus. That's a good nickname for you. And Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So whatever happened here, Barnabas allows Paul to be the main teacher, but he's, he's there with him. And then it says in verse 26 as well, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Some of you know that verse is in the Bible, and now you know exactly where it is. They had been called other things, and they will be called other things like disciples and believers and witnesses and brothers and and followers of the way, and saints, and Nazarenes, but to be a Christian was to be a christ in. Does that make sense? Like, we are Smithvillians around here, or, you know, you're, it's who you're associated with. Now, initially when they're called Christians, I don't think it was a flattering term. It was a derogatory term. You're the ones that follow that Christ guy. In fact, it's kind of a funny play on words, but if you followed Caesar, you were a Caesarian. Okay? I don't think that has anything to do with the, the surgery or anything like that, but that was how people described those who follow certain people. So they were Christians. Here's what Matthew Henry had to say at this point. Because the question is, would people call us Christians? Not because we go to church, but would, they, would the people in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, say you're one of those Christian people? Not, and it may be derogatory just like that. And by the way, praise God that we live at a time when there's such a contrast that people can make fun of us for following Christ. You understand that that shows that we're pointing them in a, in a different direction and we should rejoice that we can be, you know, bear his name the way I think Peter says it. But Matthew Henry says this. Are, you, are we Christians? Then we ought to think and speak and act and everything becomes Christians. As everything becomes Christians, and do not, and do, and to do nothing to the reproach of that worthy name by which we are called. That that may not be said to which Alexander said. So here's Alexander on the battlefield, and one of his soldiers was a coward, okay? And here's what Alexander said to that cowardly soldier. Either change your name or change your manners, okay? If you're going to follow me, then act like me. And if you're not going to act like me, then don't pe tell people you're following me. May that be said of those of us who claim the name of Christ. 
Either change your name, don't claim Christ, or change the way you live. That's what Alexander was saying. That's what this name Christian comes. It's unique. Again, it wasn't a compliment at the time. But here's also what I think is amazing about this. Jews and Greeks are Christians now. They're that new race of people. They are no longer identified mainly as the color of their skin or their, even their thought process or their family traditions. Their, their main calling card is that I follow Christ. That's the great unity that comes from the Christian message and the Christian faith. Man, I got to move. Point D, equipping. Look at verse 19 again. Those who had been scattered. I told you we'd come back to those people. Verse 20, some of them, however, we don't know who those people are. Church planting evangelism will not happen because you hired me or hired somebody else to do it or we put a sign here or there. It is when the average person equipped by their church lives a faith, shares a gospel with their friends and neighbors. In fact, I think the most healthy way, and I think I see some of this happening in Trimble, that the, a church is planted or a new work is started is when people who are there see a need for their community and want desperately for something to be there so that they can draw their community to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a ground-up thing. It's not a top-down thing. I can yell and scream about church planting and tell you we're going to do this or that, but it's the movement in the hearts of you all, some of you all, and the hearts of what's going on up there. That's the foundation of that. It is, it is just people that, unnamed people, some of them. Well, who started that thing up in Trimble? I don't know, some of them. That's the way it ought to look. And so that's what happened. There's a, a guy named J.A. Stewart. He said, if, if these believers had gone the way of a modern congregation in which the ministry was designated to the sole responsibility of one man, praise God that's not the way it is here, but anyway, this triumphant period of the church's history could never have been written. How tragic that in the average church, the ministry gifts of the Holy Spirit lie dormant and latent because the average believer has no opportunity to minister. As long as every little group of believers has a paid pastor to take care of them, there is one thing certain, and that is this. The world will never be evangelized. Thank God for all the voluntary Sunday school teachers and Bible study teachers and all those who serve. If, the, if they all had to be paid for their services, very few churches would, would be able to function financially. We can't pay everybody that volunteers around here. But that's the beauty of the gospel. Hearts get changed, they volunteer, they do that. We're here to equip you. I'll move quickly through point E. I just realized, by the way, there's no Sunday school, so if I go a couple minutes long, we're good. (laughs) E, expenses. Oh, you knew I'd get to that, right? If my outline were different, I might have put next to expenses, this is how they express their love, okay? It's not just a money game. It's what's going on in their hearts, and what the, the need that they see and how God moves and, and uses their resources. So it says in verse 27, During this time, some of the prophets came down from Jerusalem from Antioch. One of them, it says in verse 28, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted a severe famine that would spread over the entire Roman world. And we could spend a lot of time discussing the role of prophecy at this time and how God had given prophets and apostles and teachers by the way, Ephesians, again, to equip the people for works of service so the body of Christ can be built up. Well, Agabus is one of those prophets. And then I, I love this, the end of verse 28, parentheses, this happened during the reign of Claudius. What Luke is telling us there, by the time this was written, so this was prophesied before it happened, 
There was actually a famine in the Roman Empire in A.D. 41, okay? And so what Luke is saying is by the time you read this, you can read your history, go Google it, and it really happened during Claudius' reign. The Bible's not making stuff up, folks. It's telling you the historical facts. And it's just like, go Google it, it happened, trust your Bibles. Verse 29, then the disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, Jesus had told his disciples that if you see somebody in need out of your treasure, help them, basically. It was part of what Christians do. Now, here's, what, here's why I find this fascinating. And I've alluded to it a couple times. Here's what James Montgomery Boyce says. This is likely... The first known act of charitable giving like this in all of human history. Think about it for a second. One ethnic group who hates another ethnic group. For the first time in human history, instead of rejoicing that they're suffering or taking advantage of it or attacking it, collects their money and gives it to them. Because they're not Jews and Greeks anymore, they're Christians. This is earth-shattering. The Greeks, through a man that persecuted them, would send money for a famine to the Jews who hated them and told them they were unclean dogs and they were kindling for the fires of hell. Do you see what the gospel does? What's happening here? I thought it was exaggeration when I read that at first, but it isn't. It used to be one tribe would attack another. One ethnic group would attack another, but for the first time, past racial and ethnic lines, they express their love for somebody else. That's remarkable. That's what the gospel does. Can I just say, I don't, you know, doesn't our world need some of that? We got the answer. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, point three, and this will be brief. I know I've said that seven times now. The effects of church planning. What happens if we get on this? First of all, the gospel to the city. We do what they do. We spread the good news wherever we go. The world needs Jesus Christ. I mean, it it sounds redundant, but the result of evangelism is evangelism. The result of missions is missions. People hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly is the growth of the church. And I wanted to find out three ways, just briefly. Eight times I've said it now. The church, universal grows. There's more and more pockets of people gathered together worshiping Jesus Christ. Obviously, a new church, if you plant a church, grows. Or you hope it does. You hope there's a new growing church there. But folks at Grace Community Church, let me tell you this. If we get all in on this, we will grow. And I don't just mean numerically. There are things being done here that other people could also do them here. But it's because it's already being done, there's not a place. And they can go do it there. This is a leadership thing. It's turning the gifts of the Holy Spirit loose kind of thing. It's if somebody from this church goes up to tremble, somebody else is going to have to step up here kind of thing. It will require faith. It will require resources. We will grow if we send or we plant another church. It's good for us. In fact, the statistics prove this out, that when churches are planted, the churches that plant churches end up being stronger and healthier and, in fact, grow as well because something's happening there. And so if we're not careful, this is where 
where we have to watch our, our perspective a little bit. It is scary at times. I've already thought, what if certain families go and start worshiping at Trimble and not here in Smithville? Well, now we say, do I have a kingdom mindset or do I have a grace community church mindset? That's scary. That takes faith. It's a risk. And I don't think about this all this much, but some of those people give to this church. What if they start giving to that church? And you guys, you guys are about ready to vote on a budget, you know, and I don't want to let that word out. God will provide. I think God will provide abundantly as we follow him. And then C is the glory of Christ. Over and over in this passage, it says the Lord's hand was with them. People turned to the Lord. It was the grace of God that had done this. It was the Holy Spirit. People remained true to the Lord. The Lord brought brought, uh, great numbers of people. John Piper famously said, missions exist because worship doesn't. The reason we share our faith is because there's somebody out there who does not bend the knee to Jesus Christ. He deserves all the worship. Anything that God will do through us, here or whatever, is his glory. It's his Holy Spirit, it's his gospel, it's his son that bought his church. Here's how I think you can apply this, and I stole this from David Lynn and the Nehemiah Fest. Pray, participate, and promote. Please do pray for whatever God's going to do through us when it comes to supporting, planting churches and evangelism. Pray this afternoon, please, if you will. I have a meeting at Trimble. Um, as you can imagine, for us, it's, there's questions. For them, there's questions. The intention this afternoon is to answer any questions they have. They're at, they're at a tough crossroads right now. They need to decide whether they trust us or not. And so if you will, if you can remember this, the Chiefs aren't playing, but if you're watching football or eating lunch at 1 o'clock, just say a prayer. You can participate. I'm around to answer any questions you might have about this. We don't know. I mean, as we move forward, we'll figure things out. But also I want to put this out there. If you go to MBTS, which is Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, there's an evangelism conference on March 7th and 8th. I'm sorry, February 7th and 8th. It's right down the road. It's 20 minutes from here. If you have any interest, if this has sparked, not just church planning, but just evangelism, it's a wonderful, frankly, incredible conference that's going to happen right down the road. If you can't afford it, let me know. We'll cover costs. I don't know how we'll do that, but we'll figure it out. But if you got two days to spend and just be equipped and encouraged for evangelism, I would love to see a bunch of us down there doing that, okay? Go register. Get that on your calendars. Talk to me if you need details. And then promote. Tell others that not only the gospel, but how important it is to share the gospel and, and do that, okay? Ultimately, too, and I've said this maybe in a roundabout way, if you don't know Jesus Christ, man, this is not like how we're going to build this or that. This is about people turning to the Lord believing him as their savior my first prayer for any of you is that you know jesus christ as your lord and savior okay let's pray father thank you for this example we have in the book of acts thank you for the church of antioch thank you for a man like barnabas full of the holy spirit encouraging others hunting them down in fact and bringing a great number of people to you god thank you for a name a man like paul And the example of your grace there, that though a great persecutor, a great sinner, you brought, had a place for him in the kingdom, God. I pray that you raise up out of Grace Community Church people far from you that will be leaders in your church someday, God. God, thank you for those unknown people, those, some of them, those 
men from who we don't know names. The boots on the ground that just are faithful to do your work. God, I do pray for our church here at Grace. I pray that we would catch a fire for sharing the gospel. And however that looks, just in our neighborhoods or if it comes to planting churches, God, in that, in that way. But help us have a heart for lost people around us. God, I do pray for the church up the road and tremble. I pray that as we meet with them that there would be a clarity of their options and they would, um, God, I pray partner with reaching their town with the gospel that we could work together to do that. And God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. This is all worth it. He is worth our glory, our, 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 our worship. He is worth our giving. He is worth our telling others about him. Thank you that he's worth it. We ask all this in his name.